text first and then we'll proceed to take a slow walk through these verses together. Well, it seemed like a fast walk for us, but so Romans chapter 6, verse, 5, uh, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Let not sin reign, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present your, uh, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at, the time, at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And that's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. What a good gift you've given us. We pray very simply that you would uh, take it off of the page or out of a device that's written before us and implant it into us that we might become more like you for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So we're uh, taking a walk through Romans, just to remind you of this. Repetition is good because that's how we remember things. Constantly reminded of that when I ask questions that, that I've uh, you know, taught on uh, a number of times and people give me that blank stare. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so that we know what we're talking about, we're in Paul's detailed explanation of the beautiful gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it was written in the Old Testament. It was the same in the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And then Paul went on to explain why we need the righteousness of God revealed to us. is because we are condemned for our sin. That's chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. 
We're all sinners. Whether we, we think we're better than others or not, it doesn't matter. We're all sinners. We all fall short, whether we're you know, terrible pagan idolaters or we are self-righteous religious people. We are all sinners deserving of God's wrath. That's how we entered the world. And that's how we will come before God in judgment if we do not turn in faith to Christ. We're sinners deserving of his holy wrath. But God then presents the solution. Paul writes it out for us, and the one word is justification. Justification, being declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5 and verse 21. Wonderful, wonderful section of uh, the New Testament that declares so clearly it's not based on anything that we do it's based on God's grace given to us and and uh, God's grace is sufficient to cover all our sins <laughs> where sin abounds his grace abounds all the more and that brings us to the next major section that we started a couple weeks ago and we missed last week, but a couple weeks ago, it's the third major section of the letter, in it, and it's the one word that describes it as sanctification, that big theological word, which simply means to be set apart from our sin unto God as his possession and for his use. Sanctification, we get the word holy from, the same Greek word saint, um, so on. It simply means to be set apart from something to something. And, uh, and in the context of the letter it is set apart from the consequence and the power of sin over us unto God, freedom that he gives us uh, to live a life to his glory. So what we've seen in chapter 6 so far, verses 1 through 11, is that we are dead to sin. In fact, that is the, really the, the essence of chapter 6 of Romans in, the, in Paul's explanation of sanctification. It is, first of all, that we are dead to sin. Dead to sin. We, before, we were dead in sin. Now we are dead to sin. And in verses 1 through 11, he made it very clear that that is based upon the fact that as believers, we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And therefore, uh, sin can no longer claim rulership over us. We've died to the fear of death, which sin causes us. We've died to the absolute dominion that sin had over us. Both the penalty and the power of sin has been removed from us who are in Christ. And Paul concluded his first main point that we are united with Christ and dead to sin by giving an exhortation, a strong command, if you will, uh, exhorting believers to be sure that they understand this wonderful truth, that they are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he he tells them, consider it over and over and over and over and over again. Keep on considering this great truth that you are dead to sin, its penalty and power, and you are alive to God, free to live for his glory and honor. And keep thinking about that over and over again. And that brings us to verses 12 through 14, where we began to read a little while ago. And and, and what we really see in these three verses, 12 through 14, is Paul describing that there are 
two presentations of our life, if you will. We can present our life either this way or that way, this direction or that direction, to this or to that. And he, he makes it clear what those presentations would be. But I remind you that uh, this begins with, or this is really kind of a transitional section, verses 12 through 14. It kind of finalizes the first main point that we're dead to sin because we're united to Christ. And it leads us right into the last half of this chapter where he is going to, to address that there are two paths to our life and we have to choose who our master is going to be, whether it's sin or whether it's God. So, he brings us here and he says that we are dead to sin and alive, God, and therefore we are to present, present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Read those verses again. Let us not... Sin, therefore, or let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It's all about who you're going to present your life to, right? Two ways that you can present your life. Now, a question might arise in your mind as you read these words and you think of what we covered two weeks ago about being dead to sin, its penalty and its power, and alive to God, and that being just an absolute fact for those who are in Christ. You might be thinking something like, well, Paul tells us that we're dead to sin and alive to God, as he did in 6, 1 through 11, and that means we are dead to the penalty and power of sin then why does he have to say that we shouldn't let sin reign in our mortal bodies or that we are not to present the, the members of our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness to sin, but rather that we are to present ourselves, our members, as instruments of righteousness unto God for his purposes and glory. I mean, why does he have to say that? Isn't, isn't that point meaningless? If we've already died to sin's penalty and power, and, and uh, it can no longer reign in our lives. Why would he even have to say this? Well, the answer to that question is really important. And, and what we must understand is that uh, in chapter 6, Paul's dealing with two different aspects of the Christian life, as he does elsewhere through his epistles, as well as Jesus did it, as well as the other apostles who wrote did it as well. And that is... There's two different aspects to living as a believer, right? The first, uh, what Paul is proclaiming, is that he's describing what we are. What are we? Well, we are dead to sin, and we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we are. We're dead to sin, and we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is an absolute truth for us who have believed in Christ. You can't be both dead and alive to sin at the same time. Right? You, you cannot be under the penalty and power of sin and free from the penalty of, and power of sin at the same time. You cannot have both sin and God 
as master over your life at the same time. Jesus said in this words, in comparison, you cannot serve both money and God at the same time. One's going to have rule and the other is not. And this is the same principle that Paul is uh, addressing. So as we go through this passage, there is a sense in which it is proclaiming what we are what we are in Christ, and consequently, some things that we will not and could not do, and some things that we certainly will do by virtue of who we are in Christ. It's who we are. For example, because we are dead to sin, we will not let sin reign in our mortal body, and we will not present the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But we definitely will present ourselves to God, and we will give him the members of our body uh, as instruments of righteousness to be used by him. And the reason that we will do so is because we are not dead in sin. We are dead to sin and alive in God. That's what we are. There's a commercial that I was thinking through this that I remember from years ago that kind of illustrates what I'm trying to communicate here, what Paul's saying to us. It showed a man in various situations, and it required him to act. And the one recurring thought throughout each scenario of the commercial was that the man did certain things because of who he was. He was a dad. The repeated line was, you're a dad, it's your job. You're a dad, it's your job. Well, what Paul is writing here is something like that. He often writes statements that have the meaning of, you're a Christian, it's who you are. It's what you do. You're a Christian. You're united with Christ. That's the first aspect of what he's writing what we are. We're in Christ. We are believers in him. We're dead to sin and alive to God. The second aspect of what Paul says in chapter 6 deals with what we must do, not what we are. It is the part of Christian living which involves the need, the absolute need for reminders and warnings and rebukes and exhortations and commands to live in accordance with what we already are. Live up to what we are. Because we do not become autonomous robots. When we are delivered from the penalty and power of sin, we still need to hear instruction, and we need to hear warnings, and we need to hear exhortations and commands about how we are to live as believers so that we might honor what God has done for us, what he's made us to be. And since we live in a mortal body which is still susceptible to temptation and sin, we need to hear reminders of how we are to honor God in our behavior. So two aspects, what we are and what we are to be doing. Who we are and what we are to practice, behavior. It really gets down to recognizing the the difference between what God has already made us to be 
and what the normal, consistent, habitual practice of believers, you know, the day-by-day process of growth and maturation, which requires our daily surrender to God. Both are part of this Christian life. Now, it won't be that way when we get to heaven. We'll just, we won't be robots, but we'll always make the right choice there. We won't need to be reminded to obey him. We'll obey him automatically. But as we look at this, we can, we can say that the one aspect that Paul talks about is, is kind of the big picture of our lives. This is what we were. This is what we are. That's the big picture of life that he presents. And the other looks at, we'd say, the individual snot, snapshots of life. You know, everyone's into all the snapshots, right? Click, 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 all the selfies. We, we, we do a whole lot of snapshots in our lives, it seems. Well, that's what the second aspect is. We're looking at individual actions, snapshots of life, the choices that we are making. The one refers to what we are and will be solely by God's grace. And the other refers to what we are constantly struggling, struggling to become by God's grace and our obedience. The one is totally dependent just on grace. The other is dependent upon grace and our obedience. And so what the Bible does in passages like this, like Romans 6, it brings clarity. First to our condition, which is what we are. And secondly, to our conditioning, what we are to be doing. Our condition, what we are. Our conditioning, what we are to be doing. So take note of in this second half, where Paul is talking about more about our conditioning than our condition. Take note of the commands that he gives. And first comes two negative commands in verse 12, right? They essentially mean the same thing. So I'm not going to break all those words down, but they essentially mean the same thing. Don't let sin reign in your bodies and don't present yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. You know, unto sin. Well, why aren't we to let sin reign? Well, because we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And sin's power to dominate our life has been nullified. It's been rendered null and void. Well, why aren't we to present ourselves as instruments of sin? Sin, because our union with Christ in his resurrection to new life, we're raised in newness of life, he said in chapter 6 and verse 3. We're buried with him in baptism and raised to a newness of life. So it's given us a new purpose in life, not to serve self, but to serve him. So don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present yourself as instruments to sin because of who you are. Your conditioning is impacted by your condition. Who you are impacts what you do, is what he's saying. Now, second, as we look at these commands, we see a positive command. It's the opposite, isn't it? Present yourself to God as being, notice what it says, alive from the dead. We're no longer dead dead in sin. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. 
The way this positive command is written indicates that we are to make a decisive commitment, if you will, to present ourselves into the hands of God to be used by him. Now, I'm not saying that it suggests a one-time decision. You make this decision, and that's it. You'll always you know, live up to it. <laughs> that's not true. There are, there are those that kind of teach some weird theology on that. When you make that decision, you never struggle with sin again, like Canon Whitehall Smith and Hind's Feet on High Places, others that held that same kind of view, but Paul didn't express that. He did not suggest that you make a decision, you'll never struggle again. In fact, what he's dealing with is the struggle of always making the right decision. So if at any time we fall and we fail to fulfill this command, what do we need to do? Well, we just need to repent and say, man, I blew that big time. And we reaffirm our commitment to present our bodies to God and our members as instruments of righteousness. But before we go on, we need to pause kind of and look at two of the words that Paul uses in these uh, three verses. The first is the word present. Present yourselves to God. Present yourselves, your members, as instruments of righteousness. Or don't present yourself this way. So that word, present, has the meaning of something like put yourself at the disposal of someone. Now, even think of it as like we present a gift to someone. We are putting it forward, right? We're giving it to them. That's just built into the English word, present, right? You put it forward. And what this is talking about, putting your life forward, bringing your life forward either to sin or to God. You've got to make that choice. So Paul is saying that believers shouldn't put themselves at the disposal of sin because of our union with Christ, what he's done for us. And, and we are to put ourselves at the disposal of God to be used by him for his purposes and glory. So the, that first word is important, present yourselves. And the second word is the word instrument. Now that's what I have in the ESV, and I think most translations have something like that, either instrument or tool or implement. And, and this word, I think, makes what Paul is saying here even more significant. The, the Greek word that's used here is hopla, H-O-P-L-A, and if you're writing it in English, hopla. And it may refer to, in fact, instrument or tools or uh, Something that is, you know, a functioning piece that you would use. A screwdriver is a tool. Uh, you know, a leaf blower is a tool. I mean, you don't get very far if you get out there without that tool and you got <laughs> Those leaves aren't going anywhere. If that's what you're doing, beside that, you'd be flat on your back, passed out if you did too much. So you use an, a tool, an instrument to, to do that. It can have that meaning, but it also can have the meaning of a weapon or armor. Now, what's significant about this is that this word, hupla, is used five times in the New Testament. That's all, just five times. Uh, Once in John and then four times by uh, Paul. 
And in all five of the New Testament, the other four besides the text that we're in, at least the other four all use it in reference to a weapon or armor. Now, I'm going to put the verses before you. I think you have them right, Joel. Here's, the, here's where it's found. John 18, 3. This is when Jesus was arrested in the garden. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Hupla, the same word. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It just wouldn't sound the same to say, you know, that John and the soldiers came with a tool in their hand or that we are to put on the tools of light. It just doesn't have the same impact, does it? it it's clearly the context of warfare or weaponry. Second Corinthians 6, 7 Paul says, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Again, clearly it's weapons. And then 2 Corinthians 10.4, it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, I was thinking as we were singing uh, some of that imagery was in the songs that we were singing about. We're in warfare, and uh, God gives us weapons in this warfare to use. Now, I think, to be honest, that most, in fact, every translation that I'm aware of, uh, aware of translates um, our present text in Romans 6 as instruments or implements or Something like that. It doesn't use the word weapon or armor. And the reason they probably made that choice when they translated it that way was because they don't see the context as being that of warfare. And so they said, well, let's take the other option, which the Greek concordance gives us, which is implement or tool or whatever. I disagree with that. I see this passage clearly as an issue of warfare. There are two masters that are being talked about in this passage who are seeking to have control over our lives. And, and our Lord has broken the power of the one master over us. And he's brought us under his control. There's a warfare going on. So I want you to think of Paul's statement in our present text in these terms. You are either a weapon of warfare being used by sin or a weapon of warfare being used by God. Hmm. How's that so? It's in the choices that you make. That's what he's talking about here, the choices that we make. So have you ever thought of yourself in this way before? I mean, it would probably not be difficult for anyone to consider how certain political figures in the present administration or in Congress, or we might bring it down to the local level, whether it's the mayor or the assembly, whatever, it would not be hard for people who are believers to be think like, man, those people are being used as weapons of warfare, you know, 
evil in evil ways used by sin and Satan with the, the things that they're promoting and doing and the things that they're passing and what they're going to cause and so on. It would not be difficult for people to think that way. And I'm not sure that hardly any of us ever thought of ourselves in this way. And we know what we are. What are we? We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's our condition. But Paul is here talking about our conditioning. The choices that we make. And the choices that we make. And we have a choice to make. Whether we will present ourselves to sin. To be used by sin as a weapon against God and his people. Or we will present ourselves to God to be a weapon used by him to fight evil. To fight evil. Hmm. Consider that if you have genuinely been united with Christ in his death and resurrection... Every choice you make to commit an act of sin, you are at that moment choosing to be a weapon in the hands of sin, in the hands of evil. And every time you make a choice to reject that temptation and submit to God and his direction, his commands, you are choosing to be a weapon that God can use to impact other people. Hmm. Think of uh, Ephesians 6, where Paul uses the metaphor of a soldier and his armor. We're in a spiritual warfare against principalities and powers and dark forces of wickedness. And he says, take up the whole armor of God. It's a, a little bit different word there, but the same idea. Take up the whole armor of God. And he, he talks about the various you know, parts of the, the soldier's armor, his weaponry, his ability to fight. And he talks about the helmet and the breastplate and the, the sandals and the shield and etc. etc. And, and then at the end of it he says, and take up the sword of the spirit, which is the spoken word of God, right? And then he talks about using prayer in connection with that. So take up Take up the sword. And now we are in a warfare. If it's not clear to you, you're, you're not paying attention to the world that we live in. I, I think we've probably felt more today than we ever have in, in the present cultural context. We're in a warfare. And we need to take up the whole armor of God. We, we take up the weapon that he's given us. Now listen, the sword of the Spirit is meant to be used as a weapon to accomplish God's purposes, right? God's purposes. But what if we take up, not the sword of the Spirit, but the sword of sin? And then we're used by sin and Satan to cause damage to people. It's like, what are you talking about, Spencer? Okay, let's see if I can make an example or two of what I'm talking about. Let's say you're in a really hot conversation with someone. Maybe there's three or four of you. It's a hot dialogue that's going on. And tempers are rising a little bit. And the temptation is to you know, revile back, as had been mentioned earlier. To you know, fight back hot words against hot words. And if you do that, what are you doing? You're picking up the sword of sin. And you're slashing at that person. You're slashing 
at them, cutting them. But if you take up the sword of the Spirit, what happens? You block the sword of sin. It protects the other person. Doesn't have to slash away at the enemy. It just would block it from slashing at the other person. Or let's say that you're, since we all have this experience in life, we drive, and we're on the road, and someone cuts us off. I, does that ever happened to any of you? Yeah. Or you have to honk your horn because they're moving from their lane into your lane, and they clearly don't care that you're there. And so you can take up the sword of sin. What would that look like? Slash, slash with words, yelling. Maybe you bring your window down so that you make sure they hear you. Or you do it with physical gestures. Or you get right on their tail. I'm here. You're lucky I'm not running you over right now, buddy. That would be taking up the sword of sin, wouldn't it? Presenting yourself as an instrument, as a weapon to be used by sin in unholy, evil warfare. What could you do? Well, you could take up the sword of the Spirit. What would that be like? Well, that would be like, whew, that was close. Thank you, God, for protecting me. And, and Lord, I just want to lift that person up to you right now. They're kind of driving rather erratic. And they were a danger to me just now, and they probably will be to someone else. So could you please protect other people on the road and maybe speak to them about slowing down? You know, somehow get it into their heads that they need to drive more safely. Put that back in the sheath. It's like, what do you feel like on the inside when you're a weapon of sin versus when you're a weapon used by God? Entirely different. I mean, agitated over here. You're agitated. You're angry. You're you want to strike out, strike back. You want to seek revenge, pay back evil for evil. And as that's all going on, what's going on inside of you? It's just, it's just, it's horrible. And you're not thinking, oh boy, that was pleasant. I can't wait to do that again. No. Oftentimes, I mean, heart rate is racing and, and I mean... Oh, it's terrible. But when you take up the sword of the Spirit, your weapon in the hands of God, then it's so different. It's like the peace of God that far surpasses all understanding moves in and guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Right? I mean, the difference is so significant. So the answer to what Paul is saying in 12 through 14 is, is really, hey, stop and think for a moment about what you are. You're dead to sin. You're dead to sin, and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And secondly, understand the principle of living under grace and not law. And that's where he takes us in verse 14. Notice 
that what he's doing there is he's transitioning from the first half, where he's talking about what we are much more than what we do, and then in verse 15, he's really going to make a switch. So 14 transitions, and it says there, for sin will have no dominion over you. So don't present yourself to sin and as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as weapons of righteousness. Why? Because sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are dead to sin, its penalty and its power. It does not have a right to rule over you anymore. Why? Because you are under grace and not law. And this statement is both an absolute truth expressing what we are and a call to action because of what is true about us. What we are is under grace. What is true about us is that we're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what we are. That is our position. But it is also a call to action. Don't let sin reign in your bodies. It doesn't have the right to rule in your bodies anymore. And only those who learn to live by the principle of grace, you're not under law, you're under grace, only those who learn to live by the principle of grace will effectively find themselves not being used as a weapon of unrighteousness for sin, but rather being used by God as a weapon for righteous purposes. Listen to what uh, the commentator Hendrickson wrote on this. Beautiful. The law, or a legalistic lifestyle, will never keep you from sin's power. The law is able to do many things. It commands, demands, rebukes, condemns, restrains, even points away from itself and to the need of a savior, There is, however, one thing the law cannot do. It cannot save. It cannot save. So it's very important that we remember that because we are in Christ, we are not under law, but under grace. And chapter 7 is all going to be about how we're dead to the law. He's going to take it up in detail. But here he's just kind of putting it forth as a principle The law can't say, but what does grace do? It dethrones sin. It dethrones sin. Both in the sense of changing what we are from what we were. Uh, It moves us from what we were to what we are now, uh, dead to sin and alive to Christ. But it also dethrones sin's mm, reign or rule through the choices that we are making. It dethrones sin. It takes away its authority in our life. It destroys sin's dominion over our lives. It enables us to offer ourselves completely to God to be used by him and for his purpose, purposes. So there are two ways that we can present our lives. We can present our lives to sin to be used in unrighteous purposes as weapons in the hand of the evil one, really. Or we can present ourselves to God and, and become weapons of righteousness to be used by God to affect his purposes and to bring him glory. 
So the question is, is hmm, what choice have you made? What choice have you made? Now that applies really at two levels, doesn't it? To the level of the believer and the unbeliever. So if, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, then the choice has been made. I'll tell you what your choice has been. Present yourself to sin and unrighteousness. To be used by Satan for his purposes. What should you do? <laughs> you should turn from that. Turn from him. Seek God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Become a child of God. Be united with him so that you are then dead to sin and alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, everything will change for you. Everything. The struggle becomes way different in the before and after. And I mean the struggle with making good choices, godly choices. But it also applies at the level of the believer. We know what we are if we're believers. We know what we are. We are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and therefore we are dead to sin, not dead in sin anymore. And we are alive to God, and we need to keep thinking that over and over and over again, that the body of sin was rendered null and void. Its authority over our lives was destroyed. It doesn't have authority over us anymore. We've been raised to a new kind of life in Christ, a life that mirrors the life of the Lord Jesus to the best that we can. So that's what we are. But we need to make a choice on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Every choice that we make. It's like, you mean every time I make a choice, I've got to think, will I be a weapon of righteousness or a weapon of unrighteousness? Well, that wouldn't be a bad thing to do. You probably won't do that. But you should learn to do that, and you should do it over and over and over again. We were talking about this at our prayer time last night in our house about, you know, it is, or maybe it's our Thursday night life group, I can't remember, but it was about the fact that we need to learn things and we have to kind of go over it and over it and over it and over it and over again. We have to kind of pound it into our heads, right? And when we blow it, we go, oh, I can't believe I did that again. We go right back to it. I've got to do it over and over. and over. It's like memorizing scripture. You've got to keep going over it and over and over it. And eventually it will stick with you. And then every now and then you'll go over that verse again and it will come right back to you. But if you wait too long, what's going to happen? Kind of filter out of your thinking. It's like, well, I know it says something like when you used to be able to say it, you know, absolutely word perfect. So what do we need to do? Yeah, we need to think, okay, God, that person just pulled over in front of me, cut me off in traffic. I kind of feel hot inside right now. I feel like I'm starting to boil over, in fact, and I feel my hand reaching for the weapon of sin unrighteousness. Help me, Lord, to reach for the weapon of righteousness. So I can be used of you. Say, I've got to do that. Well, if you did that, do you think it would make a difference in how you respond to the person that cut you off? Absolutely. And the more that you do that, 
then it's like you don't have to go through all of the motions. You don't have to think, okay, I'm kind of bullying. It's like a weapon of righteousness. Oh, I feel like I'm reaching for it. You don't have to go through it. It's like you just make the choice. Weapon of righteousness. That's the right choice. Easy decide. Make the right choice. Become a weapon in the hands of God to be used for righteous purposes. We learn to live that way. We learn to make choices that will represent well what we are, who we are in Christ. Okay, we'll stop there today and pick it up at verse 15 next week. Lord, we are thankful, thankful for your word. We are thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. (laughs) So we consider what we've studied so far in this book written by Paul so long ago that still is as practical and relative to our lives as when it was written. We recognize, we do, we recognize that sin is a problem. And and we who know you now, we can look back at our lives and see it more clearly that we were so sin-bound, we were controlled by it, and we deserve, deserved your wrath. We're so thankful that Jesus came and bore our sin in his body as he hung on the tree so that through faith in him we could be declared right before you. Righteous in your eyes. You see us through your son and not any longer seeing us for our sin. Thank you for that. Thank you that you didn't just declare us right. You are wanting to make us right as well through the process of setting us apart not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin over our lives. And so as we've been looking at this passage here in Romans 6, it it is deep and it's challenging to get a hold of, but we pray that we will. We'll understand it thoroughly so that we might live it in a way that will bring you glory. And we'll, we'll say, through our living... We'll say thank you for setting us free and giving us life in your son. Lord, we are thankful too for the good things that you provide us in this life, which we learned earlier or were reminded earlier includes suffering. But another good thing that you give us is food. And so we're thankful for the food that we're going to be able to share together in this meal and and for those that have put it together for us, we pray that our conversation around the tables will bring you glory. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen.